Scripture this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, and I'll be reading from the Common English Bible. You are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Good morning. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. I would like to do something this morning with you that I have never done before as a preacher. And instead of a sermon today, I would like to give you a bit of a book report. Um, Now, before you panic, the book is not the Bible. I give that five stars. And if you come to Trinity almost every week, we'll give the book report on that. Um, But I read another book recently um, that was a Christian history book. Um, This book is called Destroyer of the Gods by a man named Larry Hurtado. And this book is basically about the first 200 to 300 years of the Christian church. And, and it's answering the question in this kind of 200-year period in which Christianity went from almost nobody to this enormous explosion, what was it that made Christians, the Christian community, stand out from the Roman culture that it encountered? Now, why do I think this is worth our time discussing? Why should you care? Well, I think there are two big reasons why I thought this was a, maybe a conversation that was so important that we should have it together as a community. Um, one is that you can get so close to something that you stop seeing it, right? And, and one of the difficulties a lot of us have who grew up in the West in, in a culture that has been highly Christianized is we're so deep in the water, it's hard to see the water, right? Like even, even non-Christian people we grew up around have been exposed to elements of, of kind of Christian philosophy that have really become a huge part of, of Western assumption. So part of this is about seeing what you're already in. Um, but part of it that I think is really important is asking ourselves the question, what does it mean for Christians to be distinctive in 2021? Right? Christians in, in the United States today are known for a particular set of things that we may or may not want to claim. Right? Other people who look at us, there are things that stand out to them as our distinctives that maybe are not the things we would choose to be our distinctives. But that, that invites a kind of really important question, I think, for us as the community of Jesus. Like, what should be our distinguishing markers? Christians have always been a strange people, but like, what is the good kind of strange? So, so what we're going to do this morning is I, I want to kind of walk you through a little bit of what Larry Hurtado highlights in his book as some of the key distinctives of the early church. And then we're going to sweep through them a second time and just ask, what does this stuff mean in 2021? Or what might it mean? I'm sort of offering this to you as a few initial thoughts, a bit of a proposal, but if you would like to come back and have conversation during Double Take um, later this morning, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I think this is a big, open kind of community conversation. So please pray with me as we go. Lord, we thank you for the faithful witness of generations and generations of lovers of Jesus that have gone before us, who lived and who died in allegiance to Jesus and his vision of a new world that he came to bring. Shape your dreams in us, God. 
so that we can truly be your people as you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we begin to walk through some of these distinguishing markers of early Christianity, you you might be asking yourself the question, how do we know that Christianity was so distinctive? Right? Like, how, how do we know that Christianity really did look different than anything else? And there are two big reasons that we know that Christianity was really distinctive in the Roman world. And number one is how fast it grew. I want to just show you some numbers. These are scholars' kind of most accepted estimates right now of the growth of Christianity for the first couple hundred years. In 40 AD, a few years after the death of Jesus, what you have is around 1,000 Christians total, globally. By 180, 60 years later, you're only looking at around seven to 10,000 Christians. This is interesting to reflect on, right? Because this is around the time the New Testament is written. At the time the New Testament is written, you only have seven to 10,000 Jesus followers in the Roman Empire. Just 100 years later, though, we're up to 200,000, and by 380, five to six million. Now, when you look at these numbers, it's really important to know all of this happened prior to the period when Christianity was, was a religion that was embraced by the Roman Empire. This is not conversions that are being coerced by government force or because there's such an advantage in it. In fact, during a lot of this period, you were highly, there, there was a high probability you might die for making this conversion. So this is reflecting people who are coming to faith in a period of intense pressure against converting. Things don't grow like this if people have the perception it doesn't matter, right? Like, no, thousands, millions of people don't sign up for potential death because they think it's the same as what they would have without it. Um, but the second reason we, we know that Christianity really was distinctive is because of what the elite Romans were writing about Christians during this time. If you ever want to have some real fun, you, you pick up some Roman writers from the first and second century and just see what they're saying about Christians. It's real fun. Um, Let me show you just a few quotes. Um, Tacitus, who was a Roman writer during the second century, called Christianity a dangerous superstition. And he wrote that Christians were being convicted and killed because they were guilty of hatred of the human race. Um, Pliny, another writer from the same period, called Christianity a perverse and extravagant superstition. I love that term perverse and extravagant superstition. Um, Lucian, who writes just maybe 50 years or so after, he says this, and it's so tiny you probably can't see it there, but let me read you this quote from Lucian. I think this is such a fascinating commentary on what the Romans were thinking about Christians. He writes, these poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they're going to be immortal and live for all time, and in consequence, they despise death and will even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them, Furthermore, their lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they've transgressed once for all by denying the great Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Therefore, they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property, receiving such doctrines traditionally without any definite evidence. So if any charlatan or trickster is able to Able to profit comes among them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing himself on such simple folk. Now, I love this because you you can hear that Lucian is clearly a bit worked up about these Christians, but he's, he's in the process of describing what he dislikes about them, telling you all the things that make Christians stand out. 
right? They're sharing stuff. They consider each other all brothers and sisters. They've turned away from the Roman gods. They think they are immortal. Um, Now, the interesting thing about these writers, there's so many Roman historians who write about this, is how upset they are, how disgusted they are by Christians, when when it's important to understand that Romans during this period of the first and second century were very religiously tolerant. Um, When the Roman Empire was kind of spreading across the world, what would typically happen is when, when they would colonize and take it over a new place, they would just kind of pick up whatever new gods that place had, and they would add them into the Roman pantheon. So, so everybody at this period were pretty tolerant, which makes the question, why were Christians so different? Why, why was Christianity the one religious group that seems to have like set the Romans' hair on fire? Um, Hurtado suggests in his book there are two big factors, two big Christian distinctives that are coming together in Christianity that are part of the reason why this really upsets the Romans. Um, And the the first kind of distinctive that has a big role to play is exclusivity. It's really hard for us today to kind of picture what the world was like during this period. Um, But during this period of history, religion was literally everywhere. Every household had their own gods. Cities had their gods. Regions had their gods. The Roman Empire had its gods. Every meal had some kind of divine worship a part of it. Every holiday was religious. I mean, you couldn't go out and participate in any public ceremony without there being a religious element. Everything was religion in the ancient world. And the assumption was that the gods maintained public order. It was the gods' job to maintain public safety, to look after the region that that particular god protected. So so the Roman idea of tolerance was like, you can worship whoever you want in the Roman Empire, but your obligation is you better, you know, get along and worship everybody else's God too. Like that's what it meant to be a good citizen, a good neighbor, a good person. And along come these Christians who have have one kind of core fundamental uncompromising belief. And their belief is there is only one God. And that God has been revealed in Jesus and they can worship and bow before nobody else. This belief was really complicated for the early Christians because they they didn't want to be jerks, right? They they weren't looking to be social outcasts. They weren't looking to make other people uncomfortable. Paul actually talks to them about how they're negotiating this. He says to them, you know, if you go to your neighbor's house to dinner and you show up and they put some food in front of you, like, don't ask any questions, just eat it. But if your neighbor says to you, we are having this meal tonight in honor of such and such a God, and by eating, you're, you're participating in that honoring, now you can't eat. Right? The, the, the church is trying to work out, like, how far can we go? How much can we participate in a get-along kind of fashion with our neighbors, but without crossing that line that Jesus is the only one we worship and give allegiance to? And this idea of exclusivity, of of only having one God, this was completely unheard of in the religious world of the first century. The only people who believed this were Jews and Christians. And we'll talk in a second why Jews didn't get as much of the wrath of the empire as Christians did. Um, But but Romans did not get it. They just could not understand. Like, Like two days ago, before you converted to Jesus, you were participating just like the rest of us, and all of a sudden, you can't eat in a feast before our gods, like, what is your problem? And so Christians got this kind of reputation. People called them antisocial. Christians were called atheists, 
Because, you know, if you think there are hundreds of gods and people only worship one, they're like, that's practically none, right? So they call them atheists. Christians were politically suspect because the the gods of the empire were were believed to be kind of what we hold in common, right? This is what makes us a political body, uh, an empire together. So, So Christians, people kind of suspected they might be politically subversive. And maybe the biggest factor that began to hit Christians on this is it turned out Christians were an economic problem for the empire. Because if you only worship one god revealed in a man named Jesus, you stop buying idols and statues. You stop participating in all of the economics around the temple system. And the more Christians there are, the less things you're selling and the more business owners' profits are going down and the stock market's tanking. And like this is one of the things that really upsets the Romans about Christian behavior and where it leads. So one thing is exclusivity. But the second factor that is coming together in early Christianity is this. Um, The one thing that makes Christianity quite different from Judaism is that early Christianity was trans-ethnic. Now, the way that religion worked in the ancient world is pretty basically most of the time you didn't choose your religion, you were kind of born into it. Right? Your family had gods, your city had gods, your region had gods, and the, the, the gods that you were kind of born among, those were the gods you got, and that was kind of how it worked. Um, so the thing about Judaism, ancient Judaism was exclusive. They would only worship one god, and that was kind of annoying and upsetting, and sometimes that got them in trouble. But people were kind of like, you know, they're an ethnic group, and they're kind of weird and quirky, and we're not sure we like them. But we get ethnic groups or ethnic groups, right? They got their stuff. So so the Romans were most of the time fairly content to let Judaism do what Judaism was doing because they were an ethnic group. But along come the Christians, and they have this kind of radical new idea that their faith is not based around ethnic identity. That they are calling people of all, all races, all tribes, all regions to Jesus. And, you know, the pagans were like, what is going on? I mean, not only does this not look like anything we've expected, but you're disrupting people's family systems because before everybody's family worshiped the same God, and now you're telling people you have to choose who you worship, and families are dividing. And so it's the combination of these two things, of being exclusive and being trans-ethnic, that makes Christianity super, super threatening in the context of the Roman Empire and the way religion is functioning. But there are a couple of other things that make Christianity stand out during this time. Um, One, I think, might surprise you because today we take this for granted. Um, But in the ancient world, religion was not very ethical. Uh, We kind of take for granted the idea today, if somebody's religious, their religion is going to give them certain dictates about how they should behave. But that is is Christianity that has kind of given us that idea. Um, In the ancient world, religion was primarily about rituals and about sacrifices and festivals that appeased the gods so they would do you favors. Religion was about the rituals you did to get the favors, and Christianity came in and said, that's not what our faith is about. We don't have temples, we don't have priests, we don't have sacrifices anymore. You might love Christians, you might hate Christians, and the pagans did both, but the one thing they were really clear about is that Christians think their faith is in some way about behavior, right? Before, before Christians were called Christians, what they called themselves were followers of the way. 
So, so what did this actually look like? Well, there are a couple of behaviors in particular that Christians became known for that kind of stood out, e ethical lines that Christians drew. Um, one had to do with infants. Um, in the Roman world, it, it was not uncommon for people to have infants that um, either because they wanted to consolidate their wealth, they already had a lot of children, um, often they didn't want girls. So if you had an infant that you weren't prepared to financially support, you would go and set it outside and allow it to be exposed to the elements. Um, and typically the infant would either die or be taken into the slave trade. You know, from a modern perspective, it's worth saying, like, this is so appalling, it's hard to imagine that people were doing this. But this is the thing about culture, is when you see something over and over, it normalizes, and everybody takes for granted this is fine. And that's what had happened. And Christians were the only group in the Roman Empire that comprehensively got together to condemn this practice across the board, and even to start taking in infants that people had left so that they didn't get taken into the slave trade. Um, second thing that Christians got to be known for that seemed really weird to people is that Christians would not participate in certain kinds of entertainment, including the gladiator fights. Um, one of the ways the Roman emperors liked to kind of curry favor with the people is different leaders would sponsor these games and give away free tickets to the poor so everybody could come. And the typical schedule was over lunch, you would watch criminals be executed in the arena, and then they'd have some comedians and some athletic contacts contest, and then the gladiators would come out, and they'd all be carrying weapons who, that were representing different cultures that the Romans had conquered, and then you'd make them fight each other, right? So the, the point was partially to fight, but the point was also partially to, like, mock the cultures they came from and show how Rome was more powerful. Christians refused to participate in this form of entertainment. Another thing that made Christians stand out and be strange was the way they thought about sex and marriage, um, Roman culture, perhaps not unlike many cultures after them, um, ha had a pretty defined double standard in how they thought about sexual ethics and men and women. Like, women were expected to get married and be faithful to their spouse for the rest of their life, but men were not only allowed, but even in many ways encouraged to utilize prostitutes and slaves to fulfill their desires in other ways. And Christians came along and, and preached this kind of radical ethic that men and women were bound to the same standard of honor to be faithful to each other. And Christians said this isn't an arbitrary rule for us. The reason for this is we believe that the Spirit of God, the presence of God is inhabiting our bodies and whatever we do with our bodies, whatever we unite with our bodies, we unite with God and with Jesus. We, we pull them into it because we're not, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, we're not body and spirit, we're body and spirit together. You can't unite something with one without uniting it to the other. And the fourth thing, is the military. Um, the Roman Empire was an empire that was really built on military prowess and on soldiers. It was controlled and it was maintained by the armies. Um, but it, by the very earliest days, Christians were really clear that in order to join the Christian community, those who were serving in the military had to leave it. And the reason for that is that Christians professed Jesus as Lord and not the emperor as Lord. And they believed you can only take your kind of defining life and death orders from one person. You can only promise one person your absolute loyalty and obedience. So, so Christians take different orders, and Christians are called to different kinds of work. 
So all of these are kind of ethical behavioral categories that Christians are practicing that are, they're all strange kind of individually, but together they add up to this new vision where being a believer as a Christian is not just about doing a ritual, it's about living a different way of life. Um, Fourth thing that made Christians strange, Christians crossed classes. Um, Some of the, the Pagan writers write about this in really delightful ways. Um, Celsus, this leader in the second century, a writer, he, he critiques Christians for, as he puts it, welcoming the worst kinds of people. It's like other religions know how to test and choose people and initiate them properly, and Christians are notorious for disregarding all of that and just welcoming anybody in. I mean, Christians are, are crossing social classes in ways that nobody else does, and they're sharing their belongings with each other, which people thought, that's super naive. And, and it was also kind of alarming to people in a very kind of stratified, hierarchical society that Christians were telling people like women and like slaves who had virtually no power in the culture that they had moral choices that they were accountable for apart from the people who supposedly had charge of their life and beliefs. Like Christians were saying to women and to slaves, you can choose to be a follower of Jesus and you can choose to give him your loyalty and allegiance regardless about what what the people over you say. And finally, and this is a big one, um, Christians were known, they were distinctive for their courage in the face of death. I mean, during this period, Christians were dying a lot of horrible kind of deaths in very public ways. But person after person after person who watched this happen, this is very public, were like, these Christians are really weird because they do not seem afraid. It's like they're walking themselves into it. What's wrong with them? Pagan writers would write about this, and some pagan writers would be like, they're so stubborn, these Christians. Why don't they just give it up? And then, uh, but so many other writers would be like, I don't know about these Christians and what they believe, but you know, you have to admire this about them. Like, they cannot be cowed by threats of suffering and death. This turned out to be maybe the most effective evangelism technique of the early Christians. People would look at them and be like, why are these people not afraid to suffer and die? This is a picture of what early Christianity looked like to the pagans. What made this kind of group of people gathered around Jesus begin to look like something radically different from the culture around them. So what does this mean for us in 2021? Again, I'm just going to gesture in a few directions and then I hope you'll join me for some conversation a little later. Let's walk through these again. Exclusivity. I don't think anyone would argue with me. It's fair to say that exclusivity is just as controversial in 2021 as it was in the first century. I mean, so so maybe it's useful for us to clarify what we do and don't mean by this. Um, Christians are people of the way. What that doesn't mean, what that shouldn't mean, is we claim to be right about everything, that we're sure we're right, or to be arrogant jerks who don't think they can learn anything from anybody else. Right? Those, those are markers of exclusivity we need to let go. Like We're not getting it all right. There are things we have to learn. What exclusivity, what being people of the way, actually means is that we are a people who say Jesus is Lord and who voluntarily bind ourselves to the attitudes and the actions he models. We are people who voluntarily bind ourselves to the actions and the attitudes he models. 
Um, the, the name Christian, when it was originally applied to the Jesus people, um, the best literal translation of that would be Christ partisan. Christians are Christ partisans. We are people who unapologetically say, we are giving this loyalty our priority over all other loyalties. We, we are giving this person control over the things that we value. And that might seem like a radical claim today still, and it is a radical claim, but I just want to note this because I listen to a lot of podcasts by atheist thinkers. And what always stands out to me as I listen to these kind of debates and moral conversations these atheist thinkers are having is how often in the middle of some kind of controversial conversation, somebody will get really worked up and they'll be like, that is just evil. That is an atrocity. And you may or may not agree with them, right, on the position that they're taking, but I always want to ask them, like, where did you get that moral conviction from, right? And, and almost never does anyone build any kind of framework beneath it. It's just like a visceral sense, this is off, right? So, so I think that claim of exclusivity, there's a bit of a myth that that belongs to Christianity and nothing else, right? People of all different kinds of philosophies and persuasions actually believe there is something right and something wrong and that they know what it is. Right? To, to be a follower of Jesus is not to be so entirely different that way. It's, it's to say we own what is setting our standard. Right? When we say good and we say evil, we're just owning how we think we know. Um, we believe there is someone named Jesus who lived and taught us and died in the name of this, and God raised from the dead to validate. He knows what he's talking about. Right? So in some ways, we're, we're the kids who are showing our homework. You know, We're showing how we got to the answer. That's what we're doing. Um, Trans-ethnic. Ever since the early church, the, the Christian church has constantly been in danger of making our faith ethnic again by wedding faith and culture. Right? Our tradition, the Anabaptist, the Mennonite tradition, we have been about as bad about this as anybody, about not being able to, disting to distinguish our cultural forms from our faith. This is one of the most kind of central, radical, important parts of the Christian community, that we believe that our, our, our faith in Jesus is not a cultural expression. And if we're going to credibly claim that, it means we have to let go of our cultural superiority and our thought that we are the enlightened ones because of the cultural ways we live out our faith. Right? Faith in Jesus is something different than culture. That, that connection is really hard to make. A lot of people around the world are struggling with it, and we're supposed to be the place that they can look and say, here is a community, an intercultural community, that understands the difference between the one they are following and the kind of cultural expressions that, that help us embody it, but are not sacred. They're not the faith itself. Right? Ethical. What about these ethical components? Well, let's just sweep through those four again. Infants. We are living in a time when genetic testing has made it possible in ways we never had capacity before to, to see the form of someone who is coming into being. And this is raising all sorts of questions humans have not asked before about who deserves life. And I really think that the defining question for us in this period as we look forward in the history of the church, it's not a question of who we're going to judge. It's a question of who we're going to welcome into the world. Right? This question about infants and ethics is not about judgment. It's about who deserves life. Who are we going to welcome? Who do we see God's image in? Entertainment. 
Um, Christians have had a really weird history of, of getting all worked up about certain forms of entertainment, like, like playing cards. Um, I, this is not about legalism, right? This is not about like randomly tossing stuff out the window. It's just about asking ourselves a question. What forms of entertainment that are popular culturally can we embrace in the name of life and love? And are there forms of entertainment we are exposed to that demean life and degrade humans? Sex and marriage. Over this kind of last few years in the midst of the Me Too movement, culturally, I've listened to a lot of different conversations online and on podcasts from people who are talking about the concept of consent. And it turns out it's really easy to say we believe in consent when it comes to sexual ethics, but it turns out in practice it's really, really hard to tell when you have it. Because we are becoming aware as modern people, there are all sorts of complicated power dynamics that we bring into equations that make people it, really hard for people to own where their yeses and nos are. And every time I listen to these conversations and how messy and just painful and destructive it gets, I think, you know, our Christian story is not that crazy. <laughs> to, to say we believe that this this incredibly powerful, important piece of life is best conducted in long-term commitments to the well-being of other people and to the flourishing of their bodies. I mean, for my money, that may be the only actual answer to the question of consent that there is. It's just, a, it's an answer that seems so radical right now in our cultural moment that nobody seems to have considered the possibility. Um, military, let me just say this. So we, we belong to a tradition here at Trinity that has been one of the few Christian traditions that have preserved this early church conviction that you can only have one Lord and follow one Lord. Um, but it's really important, this is not just about what we don't do, this is about what we do. Um, we are not primarily people of Jesus who just don't kill. We are people who are about the work of healing. Jesus has given us a mission of healing. So the question for us is, how are we going to conduct a mission of healing in 2021? Class crossing. Um, in addition to being extremely kind of culturally and racially divided, um, this is one that really gets to me. Churches are extremely class stratified. And I think part of this, churches are social organizations. A lot of people come together and socialize. We're highly relational. And we sort of take for granted certain invisible structures, indicators of class and how we, and how we dress and how we talk and how we eat and what we do for fun. And all of these things cause people to kind of naturally self-divide and not see each other. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who've been a part of churches that I've also been a part of who ended up leaving, who basically said to me, I don't fit, and then they listed the reasons why, and they were all class reasons, right? And, and the, the class markers, nobody was kind of registering that's what they were, but they were creating these big barriers. Um, so the question that raises for me is, what would it look like for us to build relationships across classes in our community? I mean, are we aware of the class markers we bear, of the class markers we practice? What, what would it look like to cross those barriers in, in honor of other people, honoring their dignity, seeing them as people? Finally, courage in the face of death. Um, we are a culture that is running on fear now more than ever before. And that seems strange in some ways because we've, we've never been in a safer position in some ways, right? The human lifespan is getting longer. 
Um, but the more you have, the more you have to lose. And we're not just talking fear of death, right? We are, we are a culture deeply afraid of pain, afraid of suffering, afraid of loss, afraid of lack, afraid of running out, afraid of not having enough. I mean, in that kind of setting, what kind of powerful witness would it be to have a community of people who do not fear death, suffering, or lack? Like, how would a community like that stand out in their behaviors, in their attitudes, in the midst of an anxious, overwhelmed culture that sees so much to fear and so little reason to trust? These aren't answers, these are just questions. These are some of the questions I'm asking. Maybe there need to be distinctive markers of the church that aren't captured at all in, in what we've talked about today. What stood out in Roman culture, there may be some new things that should stand out now. Um, that, that's part of the question I think we can be asking together. Um, but I, I hope this window in history at least gives us a little bit of a picture of, of the line, the legacy we're standing in. As we think about what does it mean to be the people of Jesus? Um, who are somehow, as the early Christians put it, citizens of the place they live and also citizens of a different world, right? How do we bear the markers of both citizenships? I invite you to pray with me as we close. Jesus, we need a fresh imagination for what it means to follow you as Lord. To profess you as Savior and Lord is not just about what happens when we die, it's about what happens now as we begin to live a part of a new world, as citizens of a new kingdom that is coming and that will remain. Thank you for the holy, courageous strangeness of the people who came before us. Give us the imagination and the courage to also be strange in beautiful, holy ways. Teach us the ways of your kingdom so that we can live fuller and more free lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.